0: go. Uh, my name's Tony. I welcome you this morning. Uh, I have the privilege of serving as pastor in this community. If you're new or visiting, we are glad you are here. Uh, now, one of the things we like to do, it's the third week of Advent, uh, is we're doing sort of an Advent celebration. We have our Advent candles. Uh, so I want to invite the Damaster family to come forward. You guys want to come up too? Awesome. And uh, we're going to light the third uh, candle in... Advent, and the whole point of Advent is to prepare our hearts for the arrival of Jesus at Christmas. Now, the third candle is the shepherd's candle, and it represents joy. So it's the idea that the good news was announced to shepherds, just average people. Uh, it wasn't necessarily just announced to the rich and the famous, and that should bring us joy, that the good news comes to all of us. So they're going to light the, th- the three candles, and then we're going to say a prayer together. Let's say this prayer together. Dear Father, we thank you for Advent joy. For when Christ comes into our lives, he brings fullness of joy. very day. Jesus, renew our joy. Thank you guys so much. Give them a round of applause. Now, if you're in elementary school and you would like to hang out with some other kids your age, your teachers are right back over there. Feel free to join them. So, as I was uh, thinking about this message, we're in the third week of Advent. My guess is that all of us have done some Advent prep at this time. Maybe you've decorated a tree. And I was reminded of when I was uh, a young boy, my father's an attorney. And I think he got like an exchange uh, one Christmas where one of his clients, instead of paying him, gave him a tree. And this wasn't just any tree. This was like, well, tell me, what's the biggest tree any of you have ever had? Just shout it out. 11 feet. Okay, that's pretty good. Anyone else? 12. Is that the highest? Do we have a 15? Do we have a, no? (laughs) So 12 feet, right? So the tree we got was over 17 feet high. It was so massive that when we took it out of the house, we had to like chainsaw it apart to get it out. In order to put lights on, we had to put ladders up. It was this epic event. Now, since I've gotten older and we have our own family, we go and cut down a tree each Christmas. And this year, my daughter picked ours out. And you know, like most trees, like a 30 foot tree has like a base that's like 10 feet wide. We have a 7 foot tree with a 10 foot wide base. (laughs) My daughter picked it. It's awesome. But it was. It was really hard, actually, to get all the lights on, because imagine, like, you know, it's like trying to get into that center part was brutal. Now, I share this just because I think most of us relate to trees and lights and all that stuff, but I also share it because in the first century, in the Feast of Tabernacles, as we get into John 7 and 8, they have their own tree lighting, well, not really tree, they have their own challenging lighting experience. But I need to give a little bit of background. So in chapter 7 of John, Jesus goes to the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. He travels about 84 miles. He gets there. It's seven days long. Remember, they built booths or tabernacles, little, I don't know, structures that they lived in to remind themselves, hey, God led us through the wilderness. So they create these booths. They live in them. Jesus shows up on the first day, but he doesn't really start speaking until the fourth day. And then in chapter 7, where we left off, is the final day. And remember, we talked about how on that morning of that final day, the priest takes a, a pitcher of water and pours it on the altar. And as everyone is watching the priest do this, Jesus says this. He says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now we're going to pick up today. So last week we got to some of the tension that arose from that statement. Now we're about eight hours later on the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles. So that happens in the morning. Eight hours later, uh, something interesting happens on the final night of Tabernacles. So there are these four giant candelabras, right? So we think a 17-foot tree is high. These are 73 feet high. And there's these young priests, they put these huge ladders up and they start to scramble up to go light them. It's interesting, right? So there's actually these four bowls of oil at the top of every one of the candelabras. And they take the old clothes from the priests and they make those into the wicks. Right, so you have these young priests scrambling up these huge candelabras and they're set up in the court of women. So if you see that sort of circular temple area, there's the beautiful gate on the right and then the court of women. That's where the candelabras are. And there's texts from the first century that talk about when the candelabras are lit like not a square in the entirety of Jerusalem is lit, isn't lit by its light, right? So you have this massive light going out. And one of the things that's interesting, after they do this, they, the priests, who are usually a little austere most of the time, they have this like righteous rave at this point. There's like this dance that happens. And they dance uh, like David, Uh, And it's kind of out of control and fun. And as they're going, they're yelling, you know, we are Yahweh's. Our eyes are directed to Yahweh. You know, it's kind of like worship we had a few minutes ago, right? It's like we're dancing, you know, whatever. All right. So you have these big candles and they're a reminder to the people that as they light these candles, right, we're in tabernacles, a reminder that God led them by a fire at night and they followed that fire. But light is not just limited to the Exodus, right? It, throughout the scriptures, there's these allusions to light. Psalm 27, 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Right? This connection between the light, the presence of God, and salvation, the absence of fear. We also see in the prophet Isaiah, he connects God's coming kingdom with this idea of light. This is Isaiah 60. Arise, shine for your light has come. The glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness over the peoples, but the Lord rises over you or upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, kings to the brightness of your dawn. Then a few verses later, it continues. The sun will be no more will no more be your light by day nor the brightness of the moon shine on you for the Lord will be your everlasting light and your glory, your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set again. Your moon will never, will wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light. Your days of sorrow will end. So clearly, Isaiah is envisioning this day when the light of God will come, which will be his eternal forever kingdom on earth that will lead to the light of God's presence being with them always. Now, as we're sort of looking at these different texts... As they climb up, right, eight hours later in the day on the final day of Tabernacles, as they're climbing up these huge ladders to light these lights, these texts are all in their mind, right, that God's kingdom is going to come. And they're all probably standing, watching, and then they see the light, and they're all excited, getting ready for their dance to begin. And it's at this moment that Jesus says, stands up among them and says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. See, no one in the crowd is confused about what Jesus is saying, what he is claiming, who he is claiming to be. What we'll see in a second is they're focused on how he can prove it, not what he is saying. They know that he is declaring in this moment that Isaiah 9-2 has come to pass, right? Right? The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. They know that Jesus is making an exclusive claim about himself and who he is in the world, right? That he is God, the ambassador of God's light, bringing God's kingdom to earth. They know this. And we know this too, right? Because we've been in John for a bit. And in the prologue, in John chapter 1, verse 9, he says this, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Right? Jesus is the true light, the Son of God coming into the world. So when Jesus says this on the final day of tabernacles, he's not tapping into some arbitrary metaphor. He is tapping into deep Jewish hopes and expectations. But as modern people, I think even divorced from this, I, these Jewish uh, echoes into the Jewish hopes and expectations, I think we get this too, right? We know the connection between light and life, right? We know that if the sun does not exist and shed light on us, we don't live. Like, we just know that. John tells us too, right, in John 1:4, in the prologue again, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind, right? Life and light are connected in John. And as we know, just in life, we know that. But there's more here. See, light does not only lead to life, it also reveals truth. So like at night, before my, or just as my kids are going to bed, I will make sure that there is a pathway so that I can get to them at night. So I'll kick all the like sharp objects, all their toys, all the things I'm going to break my ankle on because the light is on. Because once that light goes on, off, like I'm done for. I am going to step on things. I am going to hurt myself. So when the light is on, right, I make a path so that I can get to my kids, right? Because light reveals what is true. It reveals what is before us. 1 John 1, 5, 6 says this, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. Right? So there's this connection here between truth, lies, light, and dark. Right? Because light does not simply reveal what is true. It also uh, dispels what is false. Darkness flees when light shows up. But Jesus doesn't just end here. He doesn't just say, I am the light of the world. You notice that? He follows it with this. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, let's remember the tabernacle's context, right? They're talking about building booths and following God through the wilderness who leads by a light. So now he's saying, okay, I am the light of the world, now follow me. Just as your ancestors followed the light in the wilderness, so you should follow me. Right? It makes sense. But there's even more going on here. So if you actually look at a first century rabbinic context and how discipleship worked, you have a rabbi, a teacher, and you have a disciple, a learner. And what happens? Right? Right? It's not just like a mind transfer. Like the teacher says, this is what you should know. and Then they take a test and they're like, all right, you're my disciple. That's not how it works. Right, there's this great saying in the first century. It says, follow in the dust of your rabbi, be covered in the dust of his feet. And it's this idea that you're walking literally behind your rabbi. And as he, he's walking through the dust, he flicks up dust with his sandal and it lands on the shins of your legs. And so you know you're walking in the dust of your rabbi when you're covered with the dust from his feet. Right? Rabbinic discipleship is about becoming your rabbi. When the early church picks up on this, right? 2 Corinthians 3.18 and Romans 8.29 talk about, hey, we are actually shaped into the likeness of Jesus. We are becoming like God. Jesus says not just, believe I am the light. He says, follow me. Now, all of this right, is kind of wrapped into this simple two-line sentence. But as we can see, there's a lot going on there. And the thing is, the crowd, they're like, they know what Jesus is saying. There's no confusion. The question is this. They're like, so provide evidence. Support your claim. Right, this is where the, sort of the rest of this little text goes. This is verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true, Jesus answered. Even if I do bear witness about myself, right, my testimony is true. You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not come. Now, the honest thing is, I actually feel a fair amount of empathy for these Pharisees, for these leaders, because Jesus is making an astounding claim, saying, I am the light of the world. And they're like, okay awesome like show me and they're like oh yeah, oh yeah so my father i'm the son of god my father is god so just believe him but they can't exactly call god to the stand so they're in this moment now trying to figure out how do we believe him now last week we saw how even though nicodemus right introduced chapter three, brought back at the end of chapter seven, he's like, all right, guys, if you're going to be upset at him, that's fine. But at least let's listen to what he has to say and let's pay attention to what he does. And what do they do? They just get mad at him. Like clearly in order to take Jesus seriously, they can't call God to the stand. So they need to actually pay attention to what he's saying and what he's doing. But clearly they're a little bit defensive. They're a little bit reactive to him. So Jesus says something like, You neither know me nor my father. See, it seems like after 400 years, right? So Malachi is the first or last prophet to speak. That's 400 years ago. They've come up with some pretty clear theories of how they think God is going to work in the world. They think it's going to happen this way, not that way, this way, not that way. Now God is doing this new thing and they're kind of hardened to the way God is working in the world. And you have to have a little bit of empathy, I think. Right? The reason they got into exile is because they departed from what God said. So they're now going back to these texts, back to the prophets, back to the Torah, and they're like, this is what it's going to look like. They're really trying to be faithful to the text. But in so doing, they miss out on what God is doing because they get too focused on their own interpretation and miss out to God's right action in the world. Right? The light of the world is before them, but they don't see it that they remain in the dark. Then the question for us, I think, today is, how does this then translate into our life? Jesus says the statement. We see that there's clearly some conflict around it. How does this relate to us in the midst of Advent? How does this speak into our lives? I think at its core, I think we need to start with a pretty simple question of, like, who do you say that Jesus is? But Jesus says he is the light of the world. Right, and then as we look at the text, clearly there's disagreement. Like Some people are like yes, yeah, some people are like no, which I think begs the question of us. Who do you say that he is? Right, Jesus says he is the light of the world. And that because of that, he is the truth of the world. He is the life of the world. He is the joy of the world. But I think one of the things that's sort of sad and ultimately true about the holiday season is in the busyness, it's easy to kind of forget this that like actually the point of Christmas, right, isn't lights and trees and presents, but it is about God taking on human flesh, being born in the world to bring light into the darkness of our world. As I was um, preparing this message just sort of have this picture in my brain, Um, if you've ever been to a bonfire at a church, or at at a church, that would be interesting, um, if you're going to a bonfire at a beach, you know this experience, right? So as it gets dark, let's say you're at a silomar. Uh, it gets dark, you have a bonfire, and you realize like the closer you're out of the fire, the more you can see, the warmer it is, right? If you get farther away, it gets a little chillier. The wind picks up from the ocean and you start to feel like, oh, it's a little cold, right? You get farther away and it gets darker. And I feel like this is actually a really good uh, picture Uh, And maybe even a question for us today, right? If Jesus is the light of the world, if he is that bonfire, where are you today standing, right? Are you standing next to him, warmed by the light of his presence? Or do you find somehow in the last few weeks or months or years, you've kind of drifted away and you find yourself a little colder, a little more in the dark. And maybe as you get farther and farther from the fire, you feel even a little bit less safe a little less secure. And as I was sort of praying about this image, the words like, Jesus, I think, is saying something to us, like, come to the warmth of my presence. Like, there's this invitation in this season to draw nearer to him. But I think it begins with an honest assessment of like, where are you? Like, would you honestly say today that like you feel close to Jesus, warmed by the light of his presence? Or do you find yourself a little bit farther away? Where are you today? And then secondly, I thought another way this maybe spoke into our context is, you know, Jesus doesn't just say, I am the light of the world. He also says, follow me. Right? We see that when we have, we have, right, Jesus sort of creating this analogy with tabernacles that there's a fire and he's like fire at night and the Hebrew people are following them. Like, are you following me? Jesus, This isn't simply an idea. Jesus isn't just saying, hey, believe in me. He's saying, follow me. And one of the things that's interesting about this text, he says this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And there's this like interesting balance here between this global perspective. Jesus is the light of the world, but then there's this individual invitation. Do you follow me? I guess sort of brought back this, this story for me. A few years ago, I was um, on a backpacking trip in the Cascades up in Washington, and we were uh, on the Pacific Crest Trail. And it was taking a lot longer than we thought to get to our destination. And so it's, we're on a single track, which means it's narrow. And we're up on this cliff, and the sun is starting to set. And all of a sudden, it's like within 10 minutes, it is like pitch black, Now, trying to navigate a mountain pass with cliffs in the pitch black is really hard. Thankfully, a few of us had headlamps so we could get to our destination. But the reason this story came to mind is, I think in modern life, our society is trying to approach life uh, like walking through a mountain pass without a headlamp. And the truth is, I think a lot of us are affected by our society's approach Uh, to life two ways one our society is ultimately putting more and more pressure on the individual right so there's this move in our society away from a communal way of living to an individual way which is like okay do it on your own rock it take care of it secondly we've now taken a lot of our society is all about what's your internal light right so as long as you're true to your internal light then you will do awesome at life but jesus is saying he is the light of the world Now, I share this because I think Jesus is saying he wants to offer us safe passage through the mountain pass of modern life. And the question is, are we going to take him as the light that shines, sort of, that illuminates our way? Or are we going to try and just do it on our own? See, one of the things that's interesting about this passage, and basically even just following in general, Jesus is not simply saying, believe in me. He's saying, follow me. Remember, first century rabbinic discipleship. It wasn't mind transfer. It wasn't know everything your rabbi knows. It was, hey, be your rabbi. Follow him. Do what he does. And that's why at Wellspring, we often talk about rhythms, practices, the things that shape our daily life, not simply belief. It's one of the reasons we often talk about ABLE. So ABLE is our simple acronym of saying All right, what are the basic practices we think we need to do in order to follow the way of Jesus? All right, so A, attend. Take some time each week to listen to the voice of Jesus, just to be in his presence. All right, if we want to be people that are navigating the mountain pass, we want to be illuminated by the light of Jesus' presence, we need to take some time to attend to his voice. Two, Right, recognizing that uh, is bless, right? It's be bless. That we're not just in this to do some sort of narcissistic parade, right? We are here to be a blessing, right? So we invite all of us to be a blessing to people in this room. Take time every week to bless someone in this room so that we can be a people that are loving one another, but also be a blessing outside of church walls, right? Because the gospel was not simply for the, you know, this small group of people, it was meant for the world right are we submitted to the text learning from the scriptures right we can our inner light sure there's something going on with god and us and how god made us but we need to be submitted to the text are we in the scriptures on a weekly basis are we in them so that they can provide light to our path and then e is eat eat is simply a way of saying hey we can't do this alone that we need to be with one another we need to actually spend time with one another if we want to be shaped into Jesus's image, right? Jesus doesn't meet with people one-on-one in a coffee shop. He forms a group of disciples that follow him together, right? And also we're inviting everyone in this body to eat with people outside church walls as a way of saying, hey, you know, Jesus is the bonfire, but I can grab a little stick, put some light to it and go out to where it is dark. I guess my question to you you know, as we sort of go over these different practices is, are you shaped in the image of Jesus? Are you being shaped in his image? Are you following him? When you look at your life, if you're honest, does it look more like your secular neighbor or does it look more like Jesus? I think it's an honest question. Our, our practices, our rhythms of life, are they more like our co-workers or more like the person of Jesus incarnate in the world 2,000 years ago? And then lastly, the, the last thing I just want to say, and just sort of frame it as dawn of hope, but when we look at Isaiah, right, what do we see? You see that the light of God is coming and that God is the hope of the world bringing light to things, right? This isn't, in the end, it's not all about us. Whether we stink at Abel or we're rocking it, the end all be all is that Jesus is the light of the world, not us. So even if we're beating ourselves up and being like, man, I am not very good at these things, the hope of the world isn't that we can do it. The hope of the world is that Jesus has done it that Jesus has come, that Jesus has taken on human flesh, that Jesus has lived and died for us and will come again. And that that is our hope. And that is the hope we celebrate during Advent. Not that we got our act together, but that God came into the mess of our lives and rescued us. And that ultimately God is going to come into the mess of our lives and the mess of our world and bring his kingdom in power one day and restore all things to the way they're supposed to be. To help us just kind of center into this reality that it is not about us, but it is about Jesus, Uh, we're going to take some time to celebrate communion as we enter into worship. Right? Because Jesus took on human flesh. He traveled with a group of friends. And the night before he was crucified, he gathered with them. And as they were eating... He took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. Just broken for you. Take it and eat it. And he took wine and he grabbed it and he gave thanks for it. And he said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant that was shed for you and for all that sins might be forgiven. And we celebrate communion to remember that Jesus is the center of our spiritual life, that Jesus is the one who will bring the kingdom, not us, that our hope is centered on him. Now, in a bit, I'm going to invite you to come forward and you're going to come through the center. And one of the reasons we do this, we have everyone walk up and come forward is, as a community and as individuals to say, in this place, Jesus is going to be the center of our life. And we get up and we walk forward as a way of saying, Jesus, I want to move closer to you, right? This is a way of embodying our desire to move closer to the person of Jesus. And when you come up here, there, whoever's serving communion to you is going to say, this is the body of Jesus. And you'll just grab a piece as a way of saying, Jesus, I choose you. And they'll say the blood of Jesus, and you'll take that body, that bread, and you'll dunk it in there. And that's a way of saying, Jesus, I want to be forgiven by you. Then you'll kind of go back to your seat, and we'll move into worship. But we're also going to have some people praying, uh, I think, on those two sides. And if you would like prayer before coming up, you just feel like, man, I don't know if I can go up there. I feel like I need someone to pray for me. We'll have two people praying, or after, if you want someone to pray for you, we'll have a couple people there, just as a way of saying, hey, we're not in this alone. That there can be space for us to be prayed for and cared for, and maybe there's a few couples here that would like to be prayed for, or even when you come up to communion, if you want to celebrate communion together as a couple, feel free to do that. So I'm going to pray for us. I want to invite the folks serving communion and the worship team to come up i'm just gonna pray for us as we as we start god i ask that you would reveal our hearts to us god that you would just draw close to us god that we would know you God, we would know your presence. We would know your goodness. And God, I do pray that you would reveal our hearts to us. God, we recognize in this moment that we are not perfect. God, that we are all mixed bags. And God, we do ask for you to draw near to us and purify us. I just want to invite us uh, just to say there's a prayer of confession that's going to be projected up here. Just invite us to say that together as we move into communion. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with all our heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen.